0: Sober Gratitude's podcast is proud to come together and partner with Valor Fitness Clothing in our mutual mission to support and encourage the recovering community. Based in Los Angeles and inspired by real recovery, Valor Fitness lives up to its mission. With one item sold, Valor Fitness donates one item to a homeless shelter or transitional rehab facility. Because Valor Fitness Clothing supports Sober Gratitude's mission, everyone can receive a discount when shopping. Use the code GRATITUDE20 at checkout. Also, every guest on my podcast will be graciously given a gift certificate from Valor. We're stronger together when we come together. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Episode 10 of Sober Gratitudes. My name is Sarah, and I am your grateful host. Thank you for dropping in today for an incredible episode with Gigi Langer. Gigi received her PhD at Stanford University and is an award-winning author having written 50 ways to worry less now. She is also a recovering alcoholic who will show you how alcoholism does not discriminate. Gigi is incredibly intelligent and equally warm and compassionate. I'm so thankful my podcast brought us together. Thank you again for dropping in, and please make sure to leave a review on iTunes to help more people find this podcast. Thanks again, and enjoy this episode with Gigi. Hi, Gigi. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Sober Gratitudes. (laughs) Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. I am as well. Um, So how are you doing today?
1: Oh, I'm wonderful. I'm sitting here looking out my window at a palm tree and the sunshine, although it's cool like the rest of the United States, but it's beautiful.
0: Oh, gosh, a palm tree. that just mm. Oh, I just want to absorb that thought because <laughs> I'm in a place of severe chill. <laughs> it's very cold where I'm at, so um, I'm eager for the summer.
1: You're what? This I, is a little I, I, hard to hear now.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I'm eager for the summer.
1: Ah, yes, I bet you are.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, Gigi, um, um, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on the podcast. You are um, an accomplished author with a PhD from Stanford, um, and you're also in recovery for alcoholism. So I wanted to start off by asking, just giving you the floor and asking if you can share with listeners how you got to day one of sobriety. Oh,
1: well, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, like all of us, it was not a pretty picture. Uh, although it maybe was a little different because um, I my biggest problem was I couldn't get relationships to work because I kept using alcohol or marijuana to soothe the pain of the ending of the relationship. So by the time I was uh, 38, I was facing my third divorce. And uh, in that marriage, and every single one had been a very quick courtship and then getting married. Uh, And I would use episodically uh, alcohol or marijuana It's basically how I got through the grad school experience was to go to a bar and get high, you know, on booze and marijuana every night. Um, But when I got married for the third time and moved to Michigan, I thought this was the one, but he traveled for work. And sure enough, even though I didn't have any big connections in Michigan for drugs or alcohol, I just went out one night, went to a bar and picked up a guy and got drunk and went home and did drugs. And I got home the next day. Now, my husband didn't know about that and lied and so on and, you know, started to get concerned. But the big thing was one time he was in town and I went to a bar and picked up a stranger and went out with him and called my husband who was at home waiting for me and told him a bunch of lies. And the next morning, I called a psychologist. <laughs> I said, what is wrong with this picture? I'm in my third marriage. And by the way, these episodes of going out happened within nine months of our wedding, my third wedding. So there was a big signal that something was wrong. And I, that psychologist said to me, you're in the early stages of alcoholism. And I'm grateful that he softened it in that way. And he said here, try this, try having two drinks, no more, no less every day and watch your behavior. And in essence, that's asking me to try to be a social drinker, right? Mm-hmm. So I did the experiment and sometimes I would have two drinks and not have any more. And other times I would have two drinks and three drinks and four drinks and find the drugs and the man and etc. And at the end of my experiment, which was three or four or five months, I realized, and I was seeing that therapist during that time, that if I put one drug or drink in my body, I could not trust myself to take good care of myself, and I might endanger other people. And that was enough evidence for me Um it began to become clear to me that the drinking and the drugging had contributed to my failures in relationships because I was in therapy and that was starting to come true that, you know, I had not learned how to manage my feelings or communicate my feelings or my needs. I had been pretending in all my relationships to be totally in love. And then when it would wear off, you know, I'd pretend a little longer and then I'd get angry and leave. And the way I was able to do all that faking it was by getting high and drinking when I felt disappointed or desperate or unhappy. So I did actually, my third husband was going to Al Anon and he knew about the disease. And one day he just asked me, Would you be willing to go to a meeting? And I said, Yes, which surprised me. But, you know, 1986. January 11th 1986 I walk into my first meeting 12-step meeting and boom there's smoke filling the room it's a lot of old guys and who feels completely comfortable and able to relate to all of that but me Hmm. it was such a relief not to have to pretend and the men did not approach me. You know, I'd always hung out with men most of the time and maybe one female using buddy. So I had never learned how to deal with people in general. People-pleasing, manipulative way. Well, the men didn't hit on me like I expected, so I couldn't manipulate them. And then they told me I had to make friends with the women, and I learned I couldn't manipulate the women like I used to manipulate the men. So I started you know, kind of catching the spirit of what it's like to be totally honest and upfront about who I am with all the warts and all the worries and also all the strengths. So I fell in love, you know, with AA and uh, took me six months to get a sponsor, to go to meetings regularly. But then we started working the steps and that in my experience has transformed my life. So that's pretty much how I got into the program.
0: That an incredible story. Gigi, before your uh, third husband suggested you going to a meeting, did you ever think, and before also you went to uh, see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, um, was a psychologist? Yeah. Um, did you ever think while you were actively using that you had a problem? Did you ever think that the that the substances were a problem in your life?
1: Um, You know, it's funny. Denial is such a, well, unhealthy but comfortable thing. It, It told me, oh, you might have a problem. And then, oh, no, no, you don't. Those people are worse. So, and because I didn't get drunk every single time or do shameful things every single time, it made it very hard to um, even consider. But I'll tell you, and it's it, there's a story. Um, my first person who turned out to be the first really healthy spiritual woman I ever met was my mentor at Stanford. And one day she stopped me and she'd seen me drinking the night before, and she stopped me and she said, You know, you have this talent and that talent, you're attractive, da-da-da-da. She was very complimentary. And then she said, she looked me right in the eye and she said, but there's something, there's something going on. And she didn't say any more, but that was the first little crack in the denial. Now, that was months before, well, years before I quit drinking, but that was a little bit of an opening. But I really just thought I was nuts, basically. I just thought I was crazy and um, dysfunctional, and it wasn't the drinking or the drugs.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. And you thought that way during the time you were at Stanford getting your PhD.
1: Right. You know, our capacity for honest self-appraisal is pretty much erased when we're numbing ourselves from our feelings and our truth with alcohol and drugs and sex and whatever, overachieving so I, I had very little self-awareness. Now I would convince myself I did when I got high and had all these lofty conversations and so on, but I wasn't being honest with myself or anyone
0: else. Yeah, and, and I can identify with that, Gigi, because I, for a very long time, as the listeners know, I've said it a, a few times already, that my drinking career was a long one, and I had a very long, low-bottom. And I was very good at keeping secrets and being dishonest, not just with other people, but with myself. Yep. And uh, I never knew why I felt so, like, uncomfortable and uh, lacking self-esteem and feeling that self-worthlessness. At the end of the day, and I and I'd be in bed at night, my mind would be racing and thinking, "Okay, I'm why." why is this? And I, and I had no idea it had everything to do with the fact that I was numbing some, some, um, really, um, serious issues that um, I'd experienced. And, um, it's the mind is such a powerful thing. It Mm -hmm. really is.
1: And it defends itself from uncomfortable truths that are way down there that are painful which is kind of a healthy survival strategy in our youth. But one of my big fears was that if I, and I didn't articulate this to myself, but deep down I was afraid if I got honest and faced up to what I was doing, it would be like ripping a Band-Aid off and all the pain that I felt like was in there would come gushing out at once and swamp me and hurt me and I wouldn't be able to survive it. And my experience is for anyone who's contemplating getting sober, at least in um, my, my program was the 12 steps. So there's this concept of a higher power which we can talk about later. But there's something bigger than me, bigger than my fear, bigger than my wounds. And my experience was that I did not even know about All the wounds I had from growing up in a dysfunctional family, for example, until maybe two years into the program. Mm. And because my higher power regulated what I was able what I was uh, could remember and. Felt like a great coach would. Okay, you're ready to handle this now. Even though when I remembered that stuff and looked at all those characteristics of children of alcoholic families, I just about died because I, could, <laughs> I could see myself in them. Yeah. You know, it's not like it makes it easy, but it's like having a great coach who says you're ready to attempt this next thing. It took me five years before my higher power allowed me to remember any of the um, sexual abuse. Wow. So that is something to take to the bank when you're contemplating recovery and getting honest. You won't be swamped all at once
0: by your past. That, that's very useful information and and very helpful for people who are considering um, quitting and afraid for afraid of quitting for the the reasons we you just spoke of. And it is true, and that, that in my experience as well, that I, I was afraid to address um, some very difficult emotions because I, I literally felt they would kill me. I, right. and, and it's a, a terrifying feeling. But I always my, I, I was, was always told that after I got through like the first difficult experience and walked through it and talked about it and cried about it, and I was told, "Look, you're alive. You 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 managed it. You did it." So with each one, it got uh, the, the the subsequent um, conversations I had in healing myself, it got easier and easier and easier. Um, yes,
1: that's but, so true. Yeah, I I felt like when I walked into the rooms, even with that smoky room full of older men. Hmm. um, there is something you can feel maybe not the first time you walk in the rooms or the second, but at some point it becomes very clear that there's something operating in there. That's extremely powerful. And in my experience, it was built around the 12 steps. It's, it's one of the miracles of the program when, and you've probably experienced this, Sarah, when someone walk, especially a woman walks into the room and I look at that woman, and I can see the light inside that woman, regardless of how broken down. It's like we've been able through the steps, in my case, to uncover the truth and the light and the goodness of who we are, but when we walk into the room, Of course, we think we're lower than whale shit. You know, we think we're (laughs) nothing. We think we're awful. But somehow the people in the room can see the goodness in us and the potential and respond to that. And that was a completely novel experience for me, to have people respond to my goodness rather than all my messed up actions, you know?
0: Yeah. That's a great... So, so Gigi, tell me then, you... Obviously, you got sober during the time you got your Ph.D., or was it no after?
1: After. Okay. Um, yeah. Pretty much, yeah, I was in that, uh, I wasn't married. I'd had two marriages when I entered grad school, and then um, I had a guy I lived with during grad school who was a high-functioning alcoholic, and that's, you know, going to the bar every night and getting high and so on. And then after, right at the end of grad school, I met this really seemed like a very together guy. And he um, wasn't much older than I was, which all the others had been. And he uh, was a counselor and he seemed to really have his shit together. So we started dating, we had a very quick courtship and that's when I came to Michigan to write my dissertation and finish the program. So from, you know, 83 to 86, I was in that third marriage and very much dysfunctioning and grossing myself out.
0: Wow. Well, you know, I went through college. I I have a um, bachelor's degree and I went through college, you know, heavy in my addiction and I graduated um, well and I I still to this day, I don't understand how I got I graduated with the grades that I, that I did. It's amazing. Um, so, so I, I really want to talk about your book and how you got to writing your book, which is amazing. It's called 50 ways to worry less now. And it was, it's in 2018 you published it. Yep. Okay. Um, I'm halfway through and I can't wait to finish it. Um, can you tell the listeners how you got to a place of writing the book and and get give an overview about what this book can offer the reader? Sure. Um,
1: I My first job after grad school was in teacher education, so I taught classes for future teachers and I say that because it kind of explains the way I ended up structuring the book. I'm a teacher at heart. So um, I did that career until around 2010. And then in um, during that time, I had worked multiple rounds of the steps and had multiple rounds of healing, which is what chapters five and six are about. Mm-hmm. I actually went through a period where my husband, my current husband, Peter, with whom I've been happily married for 30 years, my fourth husband, um, he started drinking again and i met him in an AA meeting so that's the entirety of chapter six so um the point is that and that had not happened until after i started the book which was interesting here i am in the middle of this book and he starts drinking (laughs) but um at chapter five is about the layers of healing that i went through you know that god was regulating so why did i write the book In 2011 I had gone home to see my mom, and my father had passed away. I had been able to set some limits with him and have a good healing with him before he passed, with the help of great therapists, by the way. And um, I had had a wonderful time with my mother. I felt no defensiveness. I felt no neediness. I felt no dissatisfaction that she wasn't loving me the way I wanted to be loved. Just all of that had been erased, and I I didn't quite know how except that I had been working the program just like my sponsors had told me to. So I'm on the airplane flying home to Michigan, and I thought, what if somehow people who are not in the program could acquire some of these tools that have helped me so much and created this, you know, all these miracles but especially that one right then I mean the biggest miracle was my happy marriage you know I mean my higher power must have looked down and said you know this woman really needs a man in her life (laughs) and I'm gonna (laughs) because I was in sobriety at the end of the third marriage and we went to counseling and I didn't just leave and you know, usually every other relationship, I just picked up and left. But this one, I was in the program, and I didn't do anything dramatic for a year, just like they suggested. But after counseling, and so on, we did decide to divorce. So then a year after that, I met my husband, Peter. And then I took a long time to get to know him. But the fact that I could be happy in a relationship after Three divorces plus two other long-term crash and burn relationships was like the biggest miracle. So I must say, on the airplane, I was feeling grateful for that too. Plus the healing with my family. Mm-hmm. So I thought I pulled out a piece of paper and um, and I I like taking complicated stuff and simplifying it. I did that in my career in helping teachers improve their practice. And um, so I thought, what if I could boil down the 12 steps into something really simple people could grab onto, you know? And so I wrote down, uh, there needs to be, people need to get honest. In my experience, there needs to be claiming some power greater than our own fear, whether that's your true self or courage or a God or whatever that is. Then there need to be choices to improve one's life and the willingness to do the work And then there needs to be a ton of footwork and using specific practices, some of which are the 12 steps. But there's tons more things that we all use, like the golden key, where we substitute our negative thought for a thought about God and all those wonderful tools that we've learned in the program. And I learned a lot of tools outside of the program because I had to deal with chronic pain, my husband returning to drinking, my own perfectionism, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, physical abuse, et cetera, et cetera. So I wrote down those four. And then for some reason, I just had a passion for doing it. At one point, I was going to say, oh, I've been through all these marriages, and I've lived in these different places, and I've had all these adventures. I should write a memoir. And one day, Peter, my husband, said, you know, I think you ought to write a self-help book and put in it all the stuff I hear you telling your There? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So put in it everything that i hear you tell your sponsees on the phone and i thought well there's an interesting idea so i went back to the four strategies that was the impetus and i have to say just like you with your podcast when when our higher power however we think about that puts a desire in our the center of us a burning desire a passion even though there's a bunch of doubts that come in to fight it that passion burns and directs us. And I was never, well, there were times that I was afraid. Chapter five is exceedingly honest. <laughs> but basically, most of the time, I was running up the stairs to write. And then when I hit a wall of fear and hesitation, which were several times, I sought out therapy or energy work, etc., meditation, whatever tools would help me through it.
0: And Gigi, the fear that you had, um, can you talk about that, where that fear came from?
1: Yes. You know, one of the things I love about the steps is that um, once you get through one, two, and three, that, you know, there's something bigger than my own fear-based self that's going to help me get healthy. Then we get into the inventory. It's created in such a clever wise way because it looks at okay you know what are our resentments and fears but then it goes on and says gee what what need was i trying to fulfill was i trying to help myself be more secure was i trying to be uh you know more materially successful why was this instinct in me twisted so that it became so self-centered and um I found that in my own life, with the assistance of therapy and great sponsors, I was able to forgive myself for being so screwed up because I could see that these were just my best attempts to take care of myself. So then my therapist got me into, well, why did I have such a need to take care of myself and be so independent? Oh yeah, I was the fourth child in an alcoholic home it had escalated by the time i was little my mom was totally focused on my dad i didn't feel i was worth anyone's love and attention so i started you know overachieving getting good grades then i discovered boys then i discovered alcohol all those things to you know numb the effects of growing up in that family so it was so helpful in therapy to see oh And we did some of that inner child stuff, you know, Mm. okay, little girl that was so afraid in that family, that's not who we are now. We're Mm. in the program and in therapy, we are growing an adult Gigi who can handle life with her higher power and her support system and her sponsor. We can handle life and, and make sure we feel safe. And that's a huge growth which comes slowly, but if you stick with the program, and in my case, therapy, it happens.
0: That's incredible. And so did you feel, did you feel that you experienced a transformation of self from when you were active in addiction? And then when you got into recovery, did that, did you, one, experience a a shift in self and a transformation right away or after a period of time or not at all can you share about that
1: yeah i would say it was gradual and i had you know mentors my sponsor and therapist and friends when i would tell them something i was struggling with they wouldn't give me advice but they would encourage me that you know we had the resources together through a higher power that would help me through it. And then at the other side of that struggle, which is pretty much what the book does, is just each struggle and what tools I use to get through it and then how I felt after. So the big transformation is, oh my gosh, I can handle life Mm. no matter what happens. And I have to say that the higher power thing was a bit abstract for me and I didn't like the male aspect of it. So in a way, it was more the women in the program who responded to my light and loved me and and taught me um, that I was lovable and acceptable exactly as I was even with all the warts. That was the factor that transformed me the most. And that requires letting go of that fierce independence that I developed Mm. in my family of origin. I can do this myself. I don't need anyone. That's a hard thing to cross over into accepting help from others. And yet going to meetings enough, you know, after six months, I was going, oh, these women are talking about their sponsors. And I sure wish I had someone like that, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And then finally, I screwed up the courage to ask just the right person. Yeah. You know?
0: Yep. That's wonderful. So Gigi, how do you feel how do you feel about yourself today compared to uh-huh. when you were a younger, active in in addiction person?
1: It's you know, we were just reading the doctor's opinion in the big book at a meeting, and I still go to two or three meetings a week, by the way. And and this is how I maintain The progress I've made, I go to meetings, I work the steps with a sponsor when something comes up and things are always coming up, right?
0: Right, right. (laughs)
1: Um, I read the literature and a lot of other spiritual literature. I pray and meditate and I do service. So I do those five things to keep myself growing. Uh, So the meetings, working the steps with a sponsor, reading spiritual literature, recovery literature, praying and meditating and service work. So how has that, well, it's hard for me. I have a vague memory 34 years ago of what it was like for me to feel so insecure, so afraid, so numbed out, such a failure in my personal life. So driven in my professional life because and I think we'll get to this, the whispered lie that I was being driven by, the false story was, you have to be perfect in your career in order to be loved. You have to be happy in a relationship in order to be worthwhile. You have to be this and that, and other people have to be this way for me to be happy. So I was being run by all these mental rules that I had in my head A guy at Stanford calls them unenforceable rules. Mm -hmm. If only my husband would be kinder to me, I wouldn't be so unhappy. Well, that might be true, but, you know, do I have total control over that? Is that going to control my happiness? No. So I would say today I will get uncomfortable from a situation But instead of getting stuck in it and drilling down into depression and sadness and then overeating, overworking, overusing, oversexing, now I don't have to medicate it because I have people to talk to. I have prayer. I have all the tools in my book that help me get through and dissolve that negative message that at first my fear sends to me. Oh, the book, my goodness. You can't write a book that's this honest. People are going to think you're neurotic. That was a whispered lie that my fear Mm -hmm. self was telling me. So right today, it doesn't mean I, I, in the snap of a finger, notice the the self-sabotage thought and then get rid of it. No, no, no. I'm like anybody else. I have to suffer with it for a while, then own it with honesty. Then I have to claim power to help me change the thinking. And then I have to uh, imagine how I want to be a channel of God's love, giving and receiving love. And then I need to do, I usually step up my footwork when I'm driving myself crazy, shall we say. That's very different from the person I used to be.
0: Mm. You know, for the listener who's contemplating getting sober, that might sound like a lot of work. Uh, what you just explained. Um, and it's something that I remember when I started working in my program of recovery, I, I looked at what I needed to do to get better. And I thought, wow, that I can't do that. That's too much. It's so much easier just to take a drink. But you know what? I remember thinking, wait a minute. I worked really hard at my active addiction You know, I was a very good project manager of, you know, when and where I got my drink, how I did it. You know, it was what I thought about all the time. And I thought, you know, I owe it when I finally decided I I owed it to myself and to the people in my life to get sober, to get sober. I said, I can work as hard in sobriety as I did in active addiction.
1: Great thought.
0: Yeah. And, and so when I had that change of thought, you know, that you're talking about the whispered lies and the, you know, everything that the whispered lies like put in us uh, makes us feel so fearful and, and avoidance of things and questioning ourselves. Those things disappear. I found that they go away when you start doing the work, the work at getting better. And then suddenly I didn't need to drink anymore to make myself feel better about things and um, I love that whisper whispered lies. I think that's such a great, uh, it, it it's a, a way to kind of envision that voice in, in my head <laughs> that says, before I interviewed you, Gigi, you have, oh no, she has a PhD. I am not smart enough to talk with her. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong. And, and I thought, oh, her book really helped me, you know, <clears throat> to really kind of, push aside those whispered lies and say no 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 you know trust my gut trust that my higher power has a plan for me and that this this desire to do this podcast is perhaps similar to that desire Gigi had in writing her book Mm. and so go ahead yeah and so and and my and my goal is really in this podcast is to help other people And um, I I don't know if that, what what were, did you have a specific goal yourself in writing your book or a lot of goals or?
1: Um, Yes. Uh, Chapter four is about drawing goodness into your life, having a vision. So, you know, when we get sober, we're looking around the room and we want to be like those people. We want to be laughing. We want to be able to overcome. We have a very strong vision in our minds through the. Uh, 12 step work of how, who we want to be. So chapter four is about choosing who we want to be. And I put in there all the law of attraction stuff and affirmations and vision boards. And I show the vision boards I use to write the book. And um, so, and right here on my desk, I have um, uh, uh, an affirmation. Thank you, God, for the many thousands of worry less now readers who are filled with your love, power, courage, and guidance to fulfill your and their highest purpose. That's the, the purpose. So it's interesting because I've started giving away books. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> um You know, I could have set a monetary goal, but it just didn't feel right in my gut. I do sell them. They're for sale. You know, I just did the Audible book with a wonderful narrator this summer, so it's available on Audible. And I still do have some tokens to give away, so at the end I can give people that information. But, um, yeah, it's really about helping people find the transformation, as you put it, to free ourselves i have this image of um if you when i do workshops on this topic i do a, a day long or a three day long um, drop the rock retreat and the image i use is that there's a um, you know a, a stick figure of a female and there's this light trying to come in through the top of her head but in the middle of her chest are all these rocks which are the whispered lies, the false beliefs, the bad behavior, all the shame. And that light can hardly get through to get into her, nor can it come out to other people. And so the steps and all the tools in the book really are about streaming that healing in to dissolve all those blockages so that the love can come in, we can receive love, which I couldn't do before, And we can give love, which I couldn't do before either, except with a specific agenda. (laughs) Right, right. Um, And that's the transformation when we're driven more by love than we are by fear. Now, it's not a permanent state because I'm a human being and I have instincts and they will cause me to be afraid, but I have tools to help me through the fear so it doesn't um, paralyze me.
0: Oh, I love that image of the rock. Drop the rock, mm. drop the, or rocks. <laughs> yep, that's beautiful. Uh, so, Gigi, I I want to get into what my podcast is about, which is sober gratitudes. And mm-hmm. um, and and in this, in the course of this interview, um, I think you know people can hear how much your life has changed, and what you might be grateful for. But I know that for myself, I don't even know if I knew truly what that word meant or what I don't really remember using that word, um, even well into a few years of being sober. Um, and it wasn't until just a couple of years ago where I found that I was saying that word constantly. Um, and so I found myself just wanting to hear about everyone else's gratitudes. So, (laughs) so tell me Gigi, what, what have, what have been some, some really big gratitudes or, or, poignant gratitudes in your life or unexpected gratitudes in your life because you got sober?
1: You know, Sarah, as you were saying that, what it was like before, and did we feel gratitude, I went back to, you know, I had these incredible experiences in my (laughs) 30s and 20s. And um, I would, for example, I got to live on a a yacht once. um, And I would pinch myself, why don't I feel happy and grateful because here i am in paradise and i'm supposed to quote unquote be happy so what's interesting or if i got a really high grade in grad school there was no aspect of anything higher than my own unadulterated self will that caused that thing to happen so when something good happened if it was only my effort that made it happen which was how i survived for most of my life Um, That wasn't gratitude, was it? It was self-will, the lack of humility in a way. So this concept of gratitude for me involves something bigger than my own self-will is operating in my life. So my first gratitude is when all of a sudden I thought, yeah, I'll go to a meeting. I mean, where did that thought come from? Mm. That was a moment of grace, you know? Um, when I quit drinking and I used to live in a little house where I had to go downstairs to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. And the first time I walked down those stairs to go to the bathroom and I was sober and I had nothing to feel guilty or ashamed about, that was a miracle. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I was astonished by the lack of guilt and bad feeling as I walked down those stairs. Um, of course, the opportunity to serve others. Uh, you know the it's kind of neat when we trust this higher power thing that just the right people come into our lives at just the right time, and we come into other people's lives at just the right time. And if there's anything that causes happiness, it's feeling worthwhile and helpful with no agenda mm. and And I have to say, my spiritual security is pretty much based on the fact that if the shit hit the fan in my life and all the biggest fears happen or one or more of them i have at least five people who would be you know i i wouldn't be able to grasp onto maybe that abstract sense of god but these people would show up for me and stream love into me and that that's a profound sense of security that I'm really grateful for, because I had no sense of security before. I had to manufacture everything that would make me safe and it never worked, which is why I used and drank. Yeah. Um, Another gratitude is moving from being a intellectually centered person that had to figure everything out, which is still a bit of an issue, Mm To a spiritually or higher powered or higher self-driven person. So before it was doubt, fear, whipping myself into action, forcing myself to do things. And I accomplished a lot, but boy, the stress, you know, I had I had joint problems, I had back problems, I had shoulder problems, you know, it was just that stress was coming out in my body. Now I'm more able to get on my knees like i did before this podcast or when i wrote my chapters i sat at my desk and meditated and prayed before i wrote um the book because i trust now that there's something wiser clearer better -er (laughs) gooder than my own intellect you know and i was a researcher you know so i really loved that analytical mind thing but it it's such a relief to be able to trust that there's a better analytical mind in my higher power that's a gratitude i have big time of course my marriage i mean yeah I thought I, you know that's a huge gratitude um and and being inspired to do the book that's another huge thing that i'm grateful for i five years ago six well let's see i started in 2011 so it'll be longer it uh yeah, 2010, 2009, maybe. If you had asked me after I retired, would I be writing a self-help book? I would say no way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the last thing I was thinking of doing. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. that's another gratitude. Yeah. Oh, it's a long list.
0: Yeah, I know. And and I, I have so many of them, too. And and we could go on and on for hours, I'm sure. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> now. What I love about your book, and I'm I'm so grateful that your higher power brought you to a place where you're brave and courageous to write it, because you're surely helping many by doing so, that it, you know, I know that there's a lot of different programs of recovery out there, and there's a lot of people who use a lot of different programs, or they don't use any program at all, and what I love about your book is that I think it can appeal to the masses, to to anyone, whether or not you um, believe in a God or you don't believe in a God. Um, And that I I, I think that um, can help, I don't know, have you received feedback from people that is similar to what I just said? Is that kind of what, was that your approach um, in writing the book to kind of appeal to the masses? Yeah.
1: I mean, I certainly wasn't loving the word God when I first started coming to meetings. Um, And and I've had sponsees and so on enough to know that it's a, you know, it is a higher power or a power greater than our fear and self-will and that we have to come to our own conception. And I lived in Ann Arbor, near Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is, you know, a a university town. And I had friends who had Native American beliefs and Buddhist beliefs. And, you know, it all worked Mm -hmm. because it was something bigger than our own self-centered fear. So I wanted to put that in there. And I also included, you know, like if you listen to Deepak Chopra um, and Oprah, they don't very often use the word God, they use true self, your true self, which is a source of wisdom and guidance that's bigger than your fear. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of people, you know, even Brene Brown, she'll talk about spiritual things, but um, it's a pretty open concept. It's interesting. Last year, I met a woman who was coming to meetings and she could not stand the word God a highly accomplished woman and she was trying as hard as she could. And we would meet afterwards and we'd talk about, maybe she could reframe it and blah, blah, which is what I encourage the reader to do is substitute their own word for whatever words I use. Mm -hmm. I ended up using the generic term loving power or positive power, Mm. but she, um, ultimately couldn't handle AA, but she, um, I don't know if you know Holly Whitaker's work. She started out with hip sobriety. Yeah, She just has a book out now. And now it, her program for people trying to get sober is called The Tempest, The Tempest. Hmm. And my friend signed up for that. And she is succeeding with it. Um, I have friends who use Smart Recovery. And that's a very fine program. Um, celebrate recovery which is Christian based mm-hmm. that really works the the thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is that in most communities the infrastructure is already sitting there waiting for you you know many meetings many people many resources <laughs> and that's I think part of the the power of it uh, you know that that it and it has a A track record and it has a system and you know whereas some of the other ones it might be hard to find a meeting or other people working that program
0: well that that that's um it's it's wonderful that there's a lot of programs out there for people because I know that I I see the addiction it seems like addiction is just in I don't know the stats um, about addiction and, al- an alcohol use disorder and alcoholism, but it sure does seem like it's, it's growing and, you know, seeing it in more, um, people with lots of illnesses as a result of, you know, drinking too much. Um, and yeah. so to be able to be a part of, you know, uh, this, in this mission, if you will, to, you know, uh, with you and others who, who are talking about the benefits getting sober and how there are lots of ways that you can get sober effectively and and heal what is what has been making you need to drink yeah Um, it's it's a it's a wonderful um community to be a part of or Mm miss you know um i guess it's just it just it feels so good you know and and for this alcoholic here i can go to bed at the end of the day and feel like i've done service work today and, yep. and I've maybe saved a life today or maybe helped, not that I'm God by any means, but exactly m- maybe the message that I brought to the listeners in this, in this episode today will plant a mm. seed or will, as you said, you know, put a crack in that denial. Yes. Um, and maybe they'll ask for help or, or go check out um, your book or a recovery program. Confident. It's funny you mentioned that crack and denial, because
1: as I was writing it, you know, you know how your hairdresser becomes your confidant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so she would be hearing, you know, the ups and downs of writing the book and so on. And occasionally she would talk to me about her husband's drinking. And um, so for some reason, she you know, you have these people who read your book before you publish it and they give you feedback. And so she said that she would like to be one of those. And interestingly enough, her husband did read it.
0: Mm.
1: And that book, he was not sober at the time. But after reading the book, he decided to start trying out AA. And he now has two years of sobriety. Oh, wow. And I've heard that from some people. I think it's kind of hard to give someone a gift called 50 ways to worry less now. Here, you need this, you know. (laughs) yeah <laughs> but um but in a way if someone could listen to the audiobook or whatever who's maybe pre-step one you know just not sure um, I think it really is helpful for people in that stage too but mostly people who are in recovery are saying oh my god all the tools in one spot and some I haven't even heard of and wow mm-hmm. it's got references and a little bit of research to support what you're suggesting. And it's very eclectic, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I even included some of the brain reprogramming research with Joe Dispenza, changing those, the whispered lies can be thought of as, um, you know, neural pathways in the brain, neurons burned in Mm -hmm. in a certain pathway. And that's why it keeps getting fired. And there's very good research that those can be reprogrammed by different ways of thinking, you know, talking to yourself, et cetera, et cetera, and all the tools. So it's, you know, there's just not one way to get healthy. Um, but I, I made my best attempt to put as many tools in that book as I could to help people escape the misery yeah. of either addiction or codependence or chronic pain or. There's a whole chapter about worrying about loved ones. You know, I I just I had a call from a woman whose daughter, you know, how many of us of women have daughters or sons who are struggling with addiction? Mm-hmm. And she's finding the book really helpful. So, yeah, I'm very grateful that God did this
0: through me. <laughs> yes, I am, too. And and thank you for sharing that. And, and it's true, you know, Gigi, and it says in your bio on the back of your book that says, that after applying tools from therapy, recovery programs, scientific research, and a variety of physiological and spiritual teachings, you discovered how to overcome your anxieties and stress, and you applied it all in this book. And what a gift! I'm so grateful that this book exists. And, and can you tell the listeners how they can find it? Sure.
1: It's um, available in ebook, paperback, and audible. On Amazon, but you'll pay a little more to get it that way. Um, but that's fine. I have a website with a blog. You might be interested in the in the blog too. But there's a um a, a page where you can purchase the book in any of the different forms there. So my website is easy to remember. It's G I G I G G Langer L A N G E R gglanger.com and it has the purchase links and the worry less now and so on so the offer i'm making in there is that um, i will mail a personalized signed copy of the paperback uh, with free shipping for a a lower price than amazon has it Um, i also have some free tokens left for the audiobook and there's a contact page in that website, gglanger.com, contact. And if you want to use the contact page and ask me for the free token uh, to get the audiobook, you could do that. And the, what I had to do for the audiobook was create a big workbook that goes with it, that's a big PDF, because there's pictures in there and graphics and the exercises you know you don't want to ask someone to do the exercise while they're driving listening to the audiobook (laughs) Uh, so anyway that that offer is open too Uh, so gglanger.com i'm also on facebook
0: twitter (laughs) etc wonderful wonderful thank you so much Gigi, and you know, I I didn't know about the PDF. I'm gonna have to get that because that's something that that would be very useful for me and uh, how I operate and learning. So, thank you so much. I'll send it to yeah. I'll send it to you. Okay, Gigi, thank you so much. You've you have done so much today in sharing your experience in active addiction and how you overcame it and transformed, and how much you've changed in terms of how you feel about yourself and and how you live your life, and what you're producing, and all the wonderful, beautiful, high vibrations you're putting out into the world, in helping other people, I'm just so grateful that I that I I know you, and I got to speak with you, and that my listeners get to know you well, and and um and maybe get inspired to ask for help. Thank you so
1: much, Sarah. It's wonderful c- to connect with you and. I have a feeling you and I will stay connected, which is a gift for both of us.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. I do, too. I'm grateful for it. Okay. Will you have a wonderful day, Gigi. Thank you. Same to you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Thank you to my guest and all of you for listening. I hope what you heard inspires you to look for and recognize the gifts of sobriety. Sober Gratitudes, a podcast dedicated to delivering messages of hope through true stories of recovery. A sober life is possible if you truly want it. If anyone who is listening feels that you or a loved one is in crisis, please ask for help by either calling 911 or SAMHSA's National Helpline, at 1-800-662-4357. SAMHSA is a helpline in the United States helping those struggling with addiction and mental health disorders. This helpline is offered in English and in Spanish and is a free, confidential, 24-7, 365-day-a-year treatment referral program.